I'm Christine Dolan, and I'm a journalist, and I know a lot of people know Mike Lindell because of some of the issues having to do with elections, but I know him in a different way. Last year, in the middle of the 2020 election, my back was killing me because I'm teleworking. So a friend of mine sent me a pillow that Mike Lindell manufactured, and it helped me to sit on a chair doing interviews, too many interviews during the day because we're all working off-site. And then this year, because we're working off-site and we, we all want to be comfortable, I tried Mike Lindell's slippers. Now, I'm a big one on slippers because I like comfort. I have worn moccasin slippers all my life. And when I tried Mike Lindell's slippers, I couldn't believe this because it really does have four layers of cushions. It's like having very loose tennis shoes on. And it's easy because you really do wear them all night long if you're working like me from the early hours of the morning to the late hours at night. So I highly recommend Mike Lindell's slippers and his pillows if you've got a back problem and you're sitting down. Now, how you get the discount for this is very simple. It's on our site. CDM is the promo code for it. Promo code CDM is what we're asking you to do. Again, you will feel comfortable for your back with those little pillows that he has and also for the slippers that you can get from him. And now let's get to our guests. Welcome to American Conversations. We have a special guest this morning, Bill Gertz, a former colleague of mine at the Washington Times, who's a national security correspondent there and also the author of Deceiving the Sky. Uh, what's the tagline on that, Bill, on the book? Uh, inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Excellent. Uh, must read for everyone. And uh, what's the best place to get that book, Bill? Uh, uh, any any book uh, place. Uh, my website is good, too, gertzfile.com. Excellent. Uh, that's kind of the uh, the book to read on, on what's going on with China. Bill has a long history of having some really, uh, I guess, uh, top-level contacts and sources inside the Pentagon and the National Security Establishment. And we're really excited to talk with Bill today about China and also Ukraine. Um, so with that being said, Bill, um, you know, I was just there. I didn't think Putin would go past the uh, the area of Donbass. Uh, let's talk Ukraine first. But what are your thoughts? What is the reason that drove him to do that? And uh, what, what do you think his end goal is? Uh, Vladimir Putin is seeking international recognition. Uh, it's kind of like uh, how can he... Uh, stamp his foot and have everybody pay attention to him. And uh, a lot has been focused on the missteps and miscalculations on the part of the Russian military. Uh, but I've looked at it fairly closely. Uh, I spoke recently with a uh, former U.S. military foreign area officer who was very steeped in the Russian uh, military. And he said uh, there was a combination of factors that uh, led to the initial uh, what we're seeing now, the stalemate, uh, by no means is the is the war over. Mm -hmm. But uh, initially, uh, first of all, the Russian army is uh, very different than other armies. Uh, they're they're much better at defense than they are at offense, and we're seeing uh, their offensive operations now and and running into to, to many problems. Uh, they typically absorb uh, more casualties than other armies. Also, the Russians did uh, something that was not part of their doctrine initially, and that was that they uh, showed what was called restraint uh, in the beginning, and that was probably one of their major errors. Uh, the restraint was uh, 
recognized by sending National Guard and interior troops as among the first uh, to go into Ukraine uh, from the three different directions. Well, the Crimean uh, forces area, that, that was uh, different. But the, the main invading force were these very untrained and ill-equipped National Guard troops. Uh, this is, uh, again, as in line with Putin calling it a... Uh, uh, special military police operation kind of thing. And these initial troops, again, were untrained, uh, ill-equipped, and took a lot of the anti-tank fire uh, from mm -hmm. the uh, f other forces coming into the country. Uh, so now we, we've seen their mistakes. And the other major factor has been the remarkable resistance and military effectiveness of the Ukrainian military. Do you think the, uh, you know, that was pretty widely reported that they were using small unit tactics instead of overwhelming air power, which they indeed possess, even though it hasn't been that effective, uh, trying to limit civilian casualties. Do you think that was the aim or they just didn't, weren't aware of what was going to happen resistance wise? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't think they were trying to limit civilian casualties. I think they were trying to get a, uh, a rapid capitulation of the Ukrainian government. And that was the big underestimate. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency also underestimated that too. They, they expected that the uh, Ukrainian government would collapse and it would be a fairly easy takeover operation for the Russians. And that didn't happen. So that, that was a uh, that that's one of the things that they're 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 now using a uh, a policy of escalation and pressure. So they're they are escalating, uh, and you can you mm -hmm. can see that with the types of activities that are going on, as well as increased airstrikes, increased uh, artillery attacks, and uh, the Ukrainians again uh, are doing a remarkable job of resistance. Again, they're outgunned and outmanned. Uh, that said, the the numbers of forces that the Russians sent in were clearly not enough. Uh, they would have needed rather, instead of the 100,000 uh, armored and motorized infantry units, uh, they probably needed uh, twice that number at yeah. least. So we're getting reports out of, you know, the Russian way of war, uh, which I don't think a lot of people understand. It's very World War II-esque, very Stalingrad-esque. I mean, they, they surround a city and they, and they just, you know, just indiscriminately bomb even though they weren't doing that in the beginning, you're right, they're escalating now. We got a report out of Mariupol this morning that 2,200 people are dead from the Mariupol City Council. Um, I've been there. It's a beautiful city. Do, do you think that Putin will be held account for this type of action in the world uh, affairs? Uh, the geopolitics of uh, what's going to happen in the world uh, post-invasion is going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I think a lot will depend on how much the Chinese bail out the Russians. Mm -hmm. and, and that's clearly uh, Beijing's objective in this. They signed, the, in February 4th, they signed this uh, major agreement in Beijing where they said they were very close allies. Uh, that said, the Chinese are going to play a, kind of a double game as they do with North Korea, claiming that they want to help the West uh, denuclearize North Korea, but at the same time providing them with hypersonic missile technology. I think they'll uh, probably do the same thing. And it'll be interesting to see uh, there is opposition in Russia to Putin. Uh, I think it's a lot of it's based on uh, Navalny, who's imprisoned, but there 
uh, thousands of people have protested and have been imprisoned because of that. So it's not clear that uh, they're going that Putin is going to have this continuing support. But he does control the key levers of power in terms of the power ministries. And uh, I, I'm not optimistic that, that he'll be ousted anytime soon. Yeah, he, he saw this coming. Sorry, Christine, and I'll let you jump in. But he built this National Guard in Russia, which he obviously over the last few years made that into a very powerful force to control the, the domestic population. Um, I don't think people will realize that. Go ahead, Christine. I was going to ask you, Bill, I, I'm really curious about um, everybody talking to, to, to Putin, and yet Biden has not picked up the phone and called Putin. Do you have any insight to that? I mean, I, I just because our Russian sources are telling us that, you know, that's really and as you said at the beginning, he wants to be recognized on the world stage. Do you think that's intentional by the White House? Yes. Yeah. They're clearly not going to engage uh, Putin at this point. Uh, they're leaving it up to the uh, Ukrainians to do the negotiating. Uh, they're trying to work out some kind of settlement. I think uh, we should be watching very closely to see if uh, if uh, Zelensky and Putin reach some agreement and where Zelensky would call for a easing of sanctions against Russia as part of the solutions to get a ceasefire going. But the White House, uh, you know, their view is that they're going to stand back. I think they've really been uh, afraid of nuclear escalation. Uh, Putin has threatened that. The Russian mm -hmm. military doctrine called escalate to de-escalate is in play here, uh, and, and it's playing out as people expected. That is that because of the lack of the success of conventional forces, uh, Russia would turn rather quickly to the use of tactical nuclear weapons uh, in a regional conflict like this. So there is a real concern about that. When when Todd was it was in Ukraine, I went back and, and uh, started researching some of the statements that Putin had released prior, you know, last summer. And I don't know whether you had a, had a um, had a chance to take a look at it, but he he released a statement in July that he based. I mean, his view, his his historical view of Ukraine and that area, and people talk about you know how he wants to rebuild the Soviet Empire. I mean, from what he released, it really isn't the Soviet empire. I mean, he, he has the czar empire in mind. Can, can you explain how he sees the world? Because I don't think, you know, so many people in the, in the West, I mean, in America, let me put it that way, understand how Putin thinks. Yeah, um, it reminds me of that uh, great PBS uh, television series uh, of John le Carre's novel, Smiley's People, where uh, mm. uh, one of the characters uh, was talking about a target of the Russian intelligence they were uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, recruit. And the, the, the character, Toby Esterhaz, he says to George Smiley, he says, George, he's a Moscow hood. I think that really captures uh, Vladimir Putin. He's a KGB product, uh, and that's kind of shaped his views. Um, I also think he has uh, undertones of trying to uh, become Peter the Great and mm -hmm. uh, exploit Russian nationalism. Uh, that said, he's uh, stated some really uh, unusual positions. For example, uh, in one of his speeches shortly before the invasion, he talked about decommunizing Ukraine. And mm -hmm. he said uh, that Ukraine was a, uh, 
a creation of Vladimir Lenin. And he said, if you want to see real decommunization, we'll, we'll show you that. And then later on, he said that his plan was to denazify that right. uh, uh, Ukraine. So it's, it's not clear what his driving ideology is, but I think it's probably a combination of, uh, of uh, Russian nationalism, uh, fascism uh, with some Leninism thrown in. So the uh, Reuters is putting out this morning that Zelensky is now begging for talks with Putin. Um, have you seen that? Do you have any? Do you think that's? Well, I, I'm hoping for a negotiated settlement. But what do you think is going to happen? I think it's certainly possible. Um, the The sticking point is the Russian demands that basically they want they want a capitulation on the mm -hmm. part of of the Ukrainian government. Um, that's clearly not going to happen. Um, uh, I think that uh, there is a, there is certainly a, a ceasefire would be great. There's the Russians are engaged in massive civilian killings there, yeah. so um, it's it remains to be seen how they actually work out some type of a ceasefire and where that can go. If if Zelensky was smart, he would try to find a ceasefire and then try to work out negotiations during a ceasefire, but. Uh, you know, the last time I think the Russians tried to do a ceasefire, they they offered a uh, humanitarian corridor to one of the uh, uh, south uh, eastern cities, and then they started shelling the civilians. And, and so it's 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 going to be dicey. But I think that's ultimately what something that we'll we'll see is some type of ceasefire. Let me ask you this, Bill. This is a you know I have been hesitant to put out a lot of the carnage porn because I didn't porn because I didn't know what was true on the ground. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the, the Azov battalion, Pravi sector are real. They exist. Uh, they do promote the Nazi ideology. They have been known in the past to do ethnic cleansing in Donbass and bomb their own people for PR reasons. From a journalist standpoint, do you think this war is being covered correctly or or truthfully on both sides? Or do you think the journalists in here in the West are pushing for the U.S. to get in a war? Um. Well, on the first point, I think the coverage has been pretty good. It's hard in in a war situation to get accurate information. Mm -hmm. I think uh, technology has assisted that. We're seeing a lot of video. It's hard to verify some of the video uh, of uh, attacks by both sides. Uh, a lot of the Ukrainian uh, footage shows them destroying helicopters and mm -hmm. uh, burned out tanks and things. Um, I don't know whether the U.S. media is pushing for U.S. involvement. I think that um, one thing the Ukraine war has has done is galvanized Western concerns about authoritarians. Uh, you know, I yeah. I'm, I grew up in the Cold War, uh, cut my teeth in journalism during the Cold War, and I, and I can tell you that uh, turning a blind eye to military aggression uh, is not a good thing. It leads to further aggression. So. There needs to be uh, helping the Ukrainians as much as possible. And whether that includes provision of MiG fighters, I think they should do it. I don't think they should talk about it. I think there should be covert support. It, should be, it shouldn't be publicized what uh, kind of weapons right. are being sent in. That, that's been my point all along. I mean, to put us on the line for you know, getting involved in the war, as a, as a former Air Force officer, um, I'm shocked at how ineffective the Russian Air Force has been. Uh, and I don't know if that's because they're holding back in case they do get in a war with NATO. I mean, that's been one point that they just don't want to lose aircraft and that they know there are man pads and other stuff in theater. Um, 
but and I know there's a lot of in reserve, but to, to, to adequately do a no-fly zone or to put in MIGs, there's no airstrips left. I mean, they've bombed all the airfields, so they'd have to be operated out of uh, Poland or somewhere like that. So uh, what do you think about this no-fly zone concept? Is it doable? Is it just anti-aircraft stuff on the ground? I mean, what, what would be the way that would play itself out? Well, I think the, uh, the threat of uh, nuclear escalation is real, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's the reluctance to uh, engage in a uh, no-fly zone. Uh, everybody mm -hmm. in Washington is uh, pushing this idea of uh, a fear of escalation. Uh, they they truly believe that uh, Putin is is ready to use tactical nukes, and that that mm -hmm. could lead to perhaps a, a greater escalation all the way up into uh, really World War III nuclear war. Mm -hmm. um, no-fly zone again. Uh, you know, I I remember the debate on. Uh, uh, just recently on Capitol Hill, there was a hearing where uh, Senator Cotton uh, was arguing uh, the point with the Defense Intelligence Agency, which said uh, doing a no-fly zone would be escalatory. And uh, uh, Cotton asked him, well, why isn't sending Stinger missiles and Javelin anti-tank mm -hmm. missiles just as escalatory? And he didn't really have a, a, a good response. As for airfields, uh, you know, they can be repaired quickly. In fact, the yeah. United States has rapid repair uh, airfield capability, and they should be sending that those those kinds mm -hmm. of kits to Ukraine to be able to help uh, with maintaining uh, Ukraine's air power against the Russians. Um, I d I've done some reporting on why the Russians haven't used uh, uh, their air power effectively, and it, it is a, a bit of a mystery. People have mm -hmm. not been able to figure out why they haven't sought uh, total air dominance, which is usually a key factor. I think it, again, reflects this notion, this early notion of initial restraint. Uh, so it was it was poor planning on their the part of the Russian general staff that they didn't try to seize the airfields and take control of the skies as a first step in uh, taking over the country. So uh, yeah. as of right now, they are not in uh, in charge of the skies. And that's that's a big uh, minus for the Russian military. Bill, do you have any thoughts about um, the meeting on March 24th in Brussels with NATO that Biden's going to be attending? Well, I think uh, NATO is uh, has been galvanized by the Ukraine conflict. And I think that's it's going to be reflective there that the NATO countries are going to start doing what uh, uh, former President Trump advocated, which was that uh, NATO needed to start pulling its own weight in terms of developing its own uh, defenses in a, in a much more robust way. What about the aftermath? I mean, we have 10 million people, well, I think it's six and a half million people are the estimates that have been displaced internally, you know, three million and growing on the, on the, on the borders. It, it seems to me when I talk to people in Poland and Hungary, now that are connected to the anti-human trafficking NGOs that are, you know, volunteering, they're telling me that they were just not prepared for these numbers at all. They they didn't see it coming. They don't have the facilities. The cities are filling up. What do what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's it's a humanitarian crisis for sure, and I think uh, I'm sure that uh, the Europeans can come together to try and provide aid and, and comfort to those uh, those refugees. There's more than 2 million, I think, in Poland alone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly uh, important that they do that. And 
Of course, uh, there's also a humanitarian crisis inside Ukraine as well as uh, these cities are besieged. How are these people going to get basic necessities of life, food and water, things like that? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's it's certainly a major it's it's the largest humanitarian crisis in Europe since World War Two. Absolutely. And the uh, I, I saw the pictures down in Odessa. I mean, the ships are the Russian ships are off, you know, in, off the shore. People are putting the sandbags up like they did during World War II. Uh, you know, I mean, do we really believe? I mean, I guess I guess Putin has surprised some of us. So maybe he would, you know, go after Odessa from the sea. But what happens then? Well, Odessa is a key port facility. Um, it's basically the uh, if you control Odessa, you can control the Black Sea, and that that's a, a a strategic foothold. So the Russians are trying to do that. There's been really strong Ukrainian military resistance uh, in the southern part. There, uh, um, the reports coming out show that they've uh, the Russians are having a much more difficult time uh, getting control of uh, of Odessa. By the way, my grandmother was from Odessa. You know, she was, uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know whether she considers her, herself a, a Russian or a Ukrainian or a Jew, but uh, she was <laughs> from that part of the world. Yeah, so beautiful. It is. Uh, let's pivot a minute to China. I mean, this the, the conflict in Ukraine has shown that Russia really doesn't have the military capability, at least to project power. I mean, they can defend their own country, but to project power in a meaningful, sustained way, just... I think maybe in Syria in a small way, but not in a massive way like in Ukraine. How does that affect China's thoughts and also our complete shutdown of the Russian economy and attempts to destroy the currency? One, do you think Biden would do that if China invaded Taiwan? And two, um, would the Chinese military be much more effective than the Russian military? Uh, good questions. I've, I've looked very closely at this issue, obviously, because I focus my reporting uh, probably 80% on uh, the, the threat from China. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese will learn from uh, the Russian military operation. Uh, what, what are the lessons that they will learn? They'll learn uh, that they have to succeed quickly. Uh, and that could mean uh, they could uh, change their war plan for uh, Taiwan to increase the number of missile strikes uh, mm -hmm. in decapitation uh, attacks against uh, the Taiwanese leadership. That's kind of what they would do. They do uh, have uh, some amphibious capability. Uh, that again is uh, is in question. I think that's probably their weakest part. They have massive missile power. Uh, so in in looking at a Taiwan scenario. Uh, it would begin with uh, missile strikes and electronic warfare strikes and followed by amphibious assaults, getting across that 110-mile Taiwan Strait, their forces to take over the country. On the Taiwanese uh, side, they're looking at the bolstering uh, national and local defenses uh, to be able to do things like stockpiling anti-tank uh, mm -hmm. and anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, Taiwan has also stepped up its, its uh, long-range missile strike capabilities. So mm. uh, the Taiwanese now have a uh, land attack cruise missile capable of ranging Shanghai, and that's a, a powerful deterrent. Uh, uh, I covered the speech by uh, General Wilsbach, who's the head of the Pacific Air Forces, uh, just uh, this week, and he spoke about 
there being an even more robust uh, response uh, in Taiwan to any type of uh, unprovoked Chinese aggression, uh, more, uh, a more robust response than we're seeing in Ukraine. So uh, at least uh, our military leaders are thinking and preparing for this, and hopefully they'll be able to deter China because the, the Chinese government and has made it very clear that it's, it's not a question of uh, if, it's only a question of when they're going to try and retake the island and make it part of the mainland. Do you think um, do you think that Biden will react strongly to China? The Biden administration uh, has uh, adopted many of the tougher, more realistic, hardline policies of the Trump administration towards China. But mm. on the other hand, uh, the uh, in pro engagement uh, with China crowd is also. Uh, making its its weight felt in inner policy circles within the administration. So you have, again, once again, uh, pro-engagement uh, people who want to engage China at all costs and who don't see China as a threat. Uh, the big takeaway for me in the recent exchanges uh, between uh, President Xi Jinping and President Biden is the Chinese uh, number one demand uh, that doesn't get mentioned uh, by our press and by uh, their readouts from the White House, but is frequent in the Chinese state media, is that China is demanding that the United States commit to not overthrowing the communist system in China. And this is a huge mistake. And it's, it's been reflected in the recent Asia-Pacific strategy document, which stated clearly that the United States was not seeking to overturn the, the system in China. This is the, the most serious fundamental error in China policy because uh, first of all, uh, what Trump did was so significant was to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party is not the same as the Chinese people. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a, uh, a, a brutal, repressive, tyrannical uh, system and the Chinese people don't want it. And the U.S. needs to recognize that they want to get rid of that system and that they want a free and democratic system like we have in the West. Christine, do you have anything else? Yeah, I, I, I just want to ask you, Bill, because, you know, I, with my television background, I, the visuals are always important, as Todd, you know, raised earlier about the, the carnage that we're seeing. Who do you think Putin was playing to in terms of the stadium? You know that stadium uh, was full, and and I, and we all you know we're all old enough to know you know most of those people were forced to be there. But when I watched that, I thought to myself, that's something Trump would have done. And a uh, lot of was he playing? To, was he playing to Biden? Yeah, he's trying to rally uh, the nationalist sentiments in Russia to try and uh, support uh, what is uh, going to be seen increasingly as a very unpopular conflict. I think that's uh, one of the reasons that they staged this major event. Uh, it also comes as uh, Putin is, is threatening, quote, traitors in Russia mm -hmm. with uh, severe. And also, I think he talked about cleansing. Uh, he's mm -hmm. talking about literally ethnic cleansing again. So uh, this is a really dangerous dictator. And I think that the world needs to really be clear in recognizing that. What do you what do you think the word when he uses the word Mother Russia? Define that for the audience. 
Well, he's he's appealing to uh, Russian nationalist sentiment that is saying that uh, Russia, above all, don't consider uh, anything other than our great national interest is is, is what he is uh, support, claiming is the reason that he has done this Ukraine invasion. And when he when he gets on the religious tone, as if he's chosen for this time, does is that really in his psyche, or does he think that that? I mean, for him to 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 allude to that publicly, I thought was interesting. Yeah, and he also made a biblical reference to uh, you know uh, blessing those who, who were giving up their lives uh, for their fellow uh, man. Uh, you know, again, this is all part of his propaganda uh, effort to try and rally support for what is definitely going to be a very, very unpopular war in Russia as well. Mm-hmm. Last question, Bill. I know you're not a Soviet or Russian expert, more focused on China, but what, you know, a lot of people are saying it's really not Putin making these decisions, that he has a hardcore group of people behind him. Do you have any insight into that? And, and if he steps down, who might, who would step in his place? Navalny's in jail. Um, so, you know, it's hard to tell. It's definitely, yeah, don't have much visibility into uh, his stability and power other than the fact that he has uh, taken steps uh, to make sure that his hold on power, his grip on power is secure. And that's done through uh, the FSB. It's done through making sure that he has generals in the military that are supporting him. And uh, I don't uh, you know, I don't anticipate him being ousted, but it certainly could happen uh, without mm-hmm. and suddenly. Uh, we don't know the yeah. mechanics, but again, uh, someone could uh, launch a coup there. I mean, we saw uh, during Yeltsin that they attempted a coup then, so it, it's certainly within the capabilities of the of the system in Russia. Bill, thanks so much for your time. You're always extremely insightful and knowledgeable with your finger on what's happening in D.C. So thanks for joining our show. We appreciate it. Thanks, Todd and Christine. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care.